The scripture reading tonight is from the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. But do not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by men, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and salutations in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. But you are not called to be rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brethren. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for you have one master, the Christ. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. So I, I have to try to remember that not everybody, in, pra- in fact, probably nobody but me, is actually in the middle of watching a nine-and-a-half-hour French documentary about the systematic attempt to exterminate the Jews in Europe. 30 minutes a day while I go running on my treadmill. It's sort of been affecting my interpretation of a lot of things. If anyone in my house complains about anything, or if I begin to worry that my hair is thinning, or that our cat was diagnosed with diabetes, I think you're not a Jew in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1942. Get some perspective. It's a sparse movie, Shoah. And this probably won't come as a surprise. Depressing. When it came out in 1985, people called it an incomparable masterpiece. There's no music, no voiceovers, no photos, no archival footage. Just this Frenchman wearing bell-bottoms and sideburns, asking questions of Jewish survivors, Polish witnesses, and German perpetrators. And they answer in Polish, Yiddish, Italian, Hebrew, German, French, English, Everyone smokes. It's the 1970s. At one point, the interviewer is talking to a Jewish man, not a survivor, but a historian, who points out that there was really nothing new uh, about what happened in the beginning. Because the church had been scapegoating Jews for centuries, isolating them in ghettos, stripping them of their rights. And then he particularly points to Martin Luther, as in the founder of the church to which we belong. I've been aware kind of vaguely, actually, that Luther was at times anti-Semitic, but I really didn't know that he'd written a treatise called The Jews and Their Lies, where he describes them as a base, whoring people, 
full of the devil's feces, which they swallow in like swine. Where he says the synagogue is an incorrigible whore and an evil slut. To be fair, Luther regularly uses violent and vulgar language about a whole lot of people. But he argues in this treatise that the Jewish synagogues and schools should be set on fire, rabbis be forbidden to preach, books burned, homes raised, property and money confiscated, they should be shown no mercy or kindness, be afforded no legal protection, and these poisonous, envenomed worms should be drafted into forced labor or expelled for all time. He also seems to advocate their murder, writing, we are in, at fault in not slaying them. I'm not trying to be all dramatic. Well, maybe I am. I mean, I started going down this path and then I got too far to turn back, so I'm dragging you all with me. But say you're watching this documentary, which makes you hyper aware of the violence unleashed by this enormous history of anti-Jewish sentiment among Christians. And then this passage comes up in the lectionary where Jesus, your Lord and Savior, or at least someone that you'd like to trust and believe in, begins this sort of violent diatribe against the Jewish leaders. It builds. It gets a lot worse after the verses we read. It actually made me feel a little sick. Surely if Jesus knew that this would lead to murderous prejudice, he would have been a little bit more graceful. I mean, we could blame it on Matthew, who definitely shaped Jesus' words to try to deal with conflict in his community, between his community and the Jewish leaders. I mean, I, you know, I sort of get it. There's conflict and feelings are running high and you're trying to promote the vision of your community. So you trash talk your opponents and make them into caricatures. I mean, I'm sure you have too been getting a lot of this stuff in your mailbox lately and hearing it on the radio and TV. But this is the Bible, not political propaganda. And it's disappointing. It's actually sort of heartbreaking to hear Jesus take what seems to me in my Shoa mode a mocking tone. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love being called rabbi. Sort of cheap criticism, actually. It's like making fun of someone for what they wear. I mean, what's wrong with phylacteries? I actually sort of love the idea of this practice. You take this little leather box and you roll up a piece of parchment with words from the scripture written on it. Words like, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then you put this rolled up piece of parchment in the box and then you fasten it on your head or your hand to remind you that these words shall be in your heart. They shall be a frontlet between the eyes and a token on your hand. I mean, yeah, it might look a little odd to wear a box on your forehead. But what about that instead of smartphones fastened to our hands and our heads to remind us of the forces that guide us? 
And the fringes, they were like these tassels that hung from the four corners of a garment. It was so that when you walked, you would, you would feel them brush against your skin, and you would see them swing, and so you would remember to delight in God's will and walk in God's way, loving your neighbor, being grateful for creation. I mean, come on. That is not exactly Kim Kardashian wearing a $300,000 dress made from the leather of some endangered animal. As far as trying to exalt yourself goes, I mean, these practices seem really not very offensive. You don't really get a very accurate information about a group by reading the literature of its opponents, obviously. So the rants against the Pharisees reflect conflict between early Christian communities and the rabbinic community. They were both these groups of Jewish people that were trying to figure out how to proceed, how to have faith, after the Jewish temple had been destroyed by the Roman Empire. You can see the conflict all over the New Testament. Like, there were these different possibilities. Christianity, rabbinic Judaism. Watching these possibilities play out over the centuries, you can see some great and really quite a few not-so-great things about where both these paths go over time. The rabbis really needed to bring to life the belief that God was present outside the temple, present in the smallest details of life. So to cultivate an awareness of this presence they became very attentive to the mundane details, like washing your hands. They really weren't trying to create elaborate issues, elaborate rituals to keep people out. They really meant to cultivate a sense of God's presence wherever you walked and talked and breathed. God was present in the midst of a meal, in a peasant's kitchen, as much as God was ever present in the temple. The point was that God was not confined by an institution. They didn't mean to impose heavy burdens. They meant to help people cultivate attentiveness and gratitude, to make God's presence tangible. They believed that you expressed your faith in God through acts of loving kindness, especially to the poor. They weren't actually rigid and inflexible, though Christian texts definitely give you this perspective. You should read their texts. Their mid-rash is wild and playful, sometimes even hilarious. They believed that reading scripture was a way of seeking God in their midst, not a way to find a static, rigid, singular answer or some formula for living. Questions for them were more important than the answers. I can only hope to ever read with even a speck of the imagination, the spirit of rabbinic inquiry embodies. I mean, there's a lot to sort through when you're reading an ancient text. And there's a lot of stuff that you don't exactly have access to. But I mean, if we use the Bible to condemn people and exalt ourselves, our nation, our religious practice, 
If we use it to fuel hatred and prejudice and self-righteousness, if we use it that way, then it's not a text that has much redemptive potential. And there are so many instances where it's used that way. That you wouldn't be completely out of your mind to question whether the world might have fared better without it. But the thing is, the Bible is really not good propaganda. This is one of the things I like best about it. Its heroes lie, they steal outright, they often drink too much. The institutions in it are established, and then they're undermined. Seeds for the undoing of the official narratives are always being planted. Stories are told, and then they're revised. The people of God are condemned, and then they're redeemed. It is definitely not a slick piece of promotion for a nation, or institution, or even a particular set of beliefs as much as it's a witness to a God who is profoundly alive and always outside the sphere of what we know. A lover that resists calculation and that knows no bounds. So why on earth do we use it to create boundaries and generate contempt? How we read our texts really matters in a really, really real way. So how do we read Matthew 23 in a way that doesn't contribute to the destruction of the world and murderous prejudice? It doesn't seem that hard, really. A lot of people point out that Jesus isn't actually talking to the Jewish leaders in this text. He's talking to his disciples. So he's using indirect communication. He's speaking of the Pharisees, but what he's really doing is warning, warning his followers, warning them about power and wanting power and about seeking status. You know, maybe people are just practically even unconsciously pulled to read it as if it's directed at some other because we fail so miserably to heed the warning ourselves. I mean, Jesus seems actually pretty serious about calling people to renounce the quest for power and wealth and status. Calling people to form a community that is antithetical to everything the empire holds to be important. I mean, that's really beautiful and kind of outrageous. I mean, look at the world in which we live. Renounce the quest for status. I was listening to this program on NPR, Intelligence Squared. Maybe you've heard of it. They say it's about uh, bringing Oxford-style debates to America. But it seemed more to me like mixing a game show with reality TV and high school debates. And why does every single thing have to involve an audience who calls in to vote? I read something lately that says because we don't believe in God anymore, so the audience has become God. But anyway, 
The thing that the program was arguing was, does income inequality impair the American dream? What the American dream is was not up for debate. Everybody knows that it's the dream of upward mobility. Both sides agree that the desire for status is what drives people to work hard. No one questioned that this was truth or that it was good. If there weren't status-seeking creatures to innovate, to create jobs, govern us, provide us with entertainment, improve the economy, etc., really the world we know as we know it would fall apart. But Jesus actually calls into question the status-seeking creature. Although we might have heard of such questions and even asked them on some level, they don't really pierce us to the heart that much. Because if we took them seriously, it would change the world as we know it. Of course it would. We are so embedded in the empire's kingdom. We are so formed by the quests we learn from being educated in its schools, from breathing nonstop its empire air. I mean, how do you live in the world and get a job and have a house and feed yourself and your family and renounce everything that the empire holds to be important? Jesus pretty clearly wants to unsettle the powers to be and actually wants to get us to participate in this endeavor. It's much easier to blame the Jews or the Republicans or the super wealthy or just someone who is not us. It's much easier to turn the text against someone else. But I'm pretty sure that the good news is never that someone else is bad. Though it's remarkable how often the idea that someone else is bad, or at least that someone else is worse than us, makes us feel good. Frightening, really. Though it sometimes doesn't actually lead to the Holocaust, it certainly doesn't lead to love. Judging is so satisfying in some sick way. I mean, it's remarkable that even Martin Luther, so often so profound in his acknowledgement that he is a sinner who needs the grace of God, a sinner who knows the depth of his need, still turns the text against someone else. I'm pretty sure that if there's good news in the text that we read tonight, it is that whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Maybe that's a beautiful promise, though it's not exactly like cupcakes and ice cream. It's a promise that God will turn the tables on the systems that we use to judge. You know, maybe it's a promise that judgment will be rooted out of us. I'm not sure that's a really feel-good sort of a thing. But maybe there's a more thoroughgoing sweetness in it, because it's the only thing that will free us to love. Sometimes I can see why there are Christians that believe that the kingdom will only be realized in another life. Because it doesn't seem very apparent that it happens in the here and now. 
but I believe that it does. Maybe we should start wearing phylacteries or fringes so that we'd be more aware every time that it brushes against our skin in the mundane details of life when we are released even momentarily from the need to exalt ourselves at the expense of others. Maybe we need to make our phylacteries broad and our fringes long so that we might sense the tangible presence of God when it brushes up against us. That we may delight in God's will and walk in God's way, even though we live in an empire that hardly allows us to take that seriously.